For those of you who listen to At the Table, again, I'm Jared Rizzi, the host, and uh, I've been thinking about all of us emerging. We've had the uh, the cicadas that are now completely gone on the eastern U.S. at this point, and they've gone, but it felt like so many of us were emerging along with them from, from COVID, and it's really a luxury. You have this situation where these bugs that have been underground for 17 years come out and you know they're out for a couple weeks and then they they mate and then they die um and and honestly sometimes that's that's uh that is an admirable situation it feels a little bit like for many of us in the united states right now the chance to emerge is upon us the chance to get out and experience a little bit of life because of the high percentages of, of vaccination because of the ability and the, the privilege really to have this kind of uh, availability to uh, to say no as so many people have i mean you see the more of a discussion in the united states these days about people willing to to say no um that is an enormous mountain of privilege that they are sitting on top of and i think it's important to to recognize that we have a child that's under the age of two who probably won't be able to get vaccinated for some time and all these worries are percolating like like really bitter coffee in my brain as I'm as I'm sitting here and stewing on these these feelings. And I was gratified because a friend of mine connected me for this conversation. I'm so glad to be able to share it with you because it's a reminder that we've been like those bugs underground for 17 years. We've been completely in our own world, isolated and thinking about what's affecting us for so long, even just for a year, a year and a half, whatever it's been, it feels like much longer, but it's it's really only been a short amount of time. And it's important to make sure that we actually emerge and look around before we make these decisions. And I'm gratified and humbled to be joined by Mercy Corps' Uganda Country Director, Edward Simiu, who is with me now. Edward, thank you for joining me at the table, and thank you for uh, spending some time. Thank you, Jared. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here and to be able to have this conversation with you this afternoon. For those of us who are in our own little dirt tunnels, as I'm thinking about these these bugs underground, uh, you're experiencing in Uganda a much different COVID time than, than we have in, in East Coast United States right now. Can you Give me a sense of what the uh, what the situation is like on the ground, what you've been experiencing, and if you can, also the mission that that Mercy Corps has to try to ameliorate any of the the circumstances that people are experiencing. Yeah, thank you, Jared. Um, we, as as I speak right now, Uganda is going through a very harsh second wave of the COVID spread. Um, the first wave came in last year in March, and Uganda did institute quite some very heavy stringent measures to control uh, the spread. And in a way that was successful. Um, the measures that were taken was a very strict lockdown where no one was allowed to leave their houses, um, no vehicle movement. You only had to move around uh, with uh, a movement permit. So household, families, individuals were all locked down. And in a sense, it was able to contain the spread. So for quite some time, um, you know, we had some of the lowest figures in terms of COVID infection for a good part of last year. 
uh, including up to March this year. There were actually days when we registered zero COVID infections early this year, February and March. But suddenly, um, the numbers started getting uh, very concerning in April and May. And then immediately in June, numbers shot up so rapidly to uh, about a week ago when we had uh, the highest about 1,754 cases registered in a day. Now, these numbers are actually understated because you know, um, the country struggled to get its data in place. Um, there is no adequate manpower to record. There are no adequate testing facilities. Uh, and largely these are on, you know, mainly in urban areas where you, people can access uh, medical services and, um, uh, and it doesn't cover much of the rural population, which as you know, is made up of about 80%. So um, the 1754 number was, uh, while it was the official figure, it was actually, uh, and the government acknowledged that, that it, was, it was understated. Uh, and um, But what was quite concerning was the high level of, um, you know, infection, that the viruses, uh, I mean, the variants that were doing the round were very, very infectious. And this time round, um, unlike in the first wave when um, the people affected mostly were the elderly and those with pre-existing condition, this was attacking young people you know, school-going kids, people under the age of 30 were so badly affected. And so within a week or so, we had all the hospitals uh, totally outstretched. Um, there was no uh, bed in, in hospitals. Uh, hospitals were running out of oxygen, um, and it was really serious. I remember going to hospital myself with, um, you know, a, a toe injury. It took me four hours to be attended to. And finally, when, when, I, when I was done and I was given paracetamol just to uh, you know, manage the pain and fever that I had, I swore never to go back because I said, I, couldn't, you know, I can't stay for four hours just to be given paracetamol. <laughs> but it was because of the numbers that uh, the hospitals were struggling with to, you know, uh, to cope. Um, it, it's been very, very serious. But this time now, it even, it even actually struck closer home. I chair a network of country directors in Uganda. Um, we have 150 international uh, non-government organizations in Uganda. Now, it, for the first time I heard of country directors contracting COVID, we had more than 10 in our network um, having contracted COVID. We lost two country directors. In, in the last week. Um, so this is how it has been. At uh, Masico, we had nine cases of, um, of infection. Thankfully, um, uh, all of them have recovered except one who is still in hospital now. And he, is, um, he, he was at one time on a ventilator, but right now he's, he's moved on, he's improved and he's on oxygen as we speak. This is how close it has been. Um, with other agencies, um, there is an agency that lost four staff um, out of COVID um, and several others. 
it's been so ruthless that this time round, it wasn't as selective as it was in the first wave. It's been hitting at everyone, those in um, high places and those in low places. It's been very, very concerning. So that's where we are. Um, and now we are, because of the way this again was spreading, so the government instituted some uh, more measures of a, a stricter lockdown. So as I speak now, we haven't been out of our homes for the last over two weeks. Wow. Uh, and wow. that's how it's been, yeah. A, a lot of the folks who listen to this conversation are coming from a U.S.-centric perspective. And I'm sure as your work in international development and aid, you know, you know that <laughs> the United States perspective is sometimes a very strong set of horse blinders that prevents us from viewing other parts of the world uh, with, with clarity and compassion at times. That's true. But I think I think of it. It's, I'm, I'm glad that you can at least uh, agree because sometimes I make this. I'm trying to. I'm trying to offer it as kind of a mea culpa, and people don't even take it, and then I feel even worse because then I know they know. Anyway, you, you know, Jared, I was in Kansas many years back. <laughs> I was in Kansas and I was giving a talk on um, on some of the programs that I was working on. I think this was probably 2009 or 10. And uh, I was trying to describe how how some households in Western Kenya, some of the remote, very dry, arid areas struggle, uh, that they have no water, um, the rivers dry out during drought, and they have to dig, um, you know, six feet uh, on the riverbed to literally, you know, get some dirty water that they can, you know, live on. And after I gave my speech and talk, um, a gentleman came to me and told me, you know, I don't believe what you say, because uh, <laughs> I, I don't think people can be that poor. And I looked at him, I saw this gentleman is like my age mate, we are now in our 50s. And um, I, I looked at him and I, I couldn't find words to <laughs> to respond to what he had done. Yeah. He had said. So yeah. I told him, if, if, if all you know, and all throughout your life, you've been in the U.S., then you will you you've not known the world the world outside the us actually is so different um yeah. what you have is a privileged life and you should be thankful for what you have the rest of us out there um you know it would be unsurprising to go without food to go without water or literally to fight for our lives because what would be freely available or easily accessible in the U.S. is not so in the rest of the world. Edward, I'm not sure what you're talking about because we were fighting each other for toilet paper last year. And that was, <laughs> that was, I mean, you know, you talk about, you know, these are, these are warlords going to, going, going to grocery stores and buying. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm again, I, again, I'm, I'm glad that we can let, let me, let, let me back up because I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want to take away from the seriousness of what we're talking about, even though I think yeah. we both know that these truths, you know, if you're not laughing, sometimes you're crying. And I think you and I no. seem to both be the kinds of men who, who would rather laugh sometimes. You talk about these lockdowns. And again, the folks who, who listen to this conversation, because of my background in politics, we, we've been very clued in to the arguments that are happening in this country to this day about whether we should be locking down and whether we should be masking and whether we should be. 
And to hear you describe, you know, I have a, we have another friend, my wife and I have another friend who lives in the Philippines. And obviously with the Duterte government, there's a whole, you know, wasps nests of other problems there. But she was talking about the same kinds of lockdowns that you're describing. And, and it's, it's unimaginable to me when we're having these conversations and talking about the ways in which people are limited now, you talk about the benefit of this, but the lockdown that you're describing is nowhere near the the, the laissez-faire attitude that was happening in the United States in April oh. and May and June, and even up till now, where people are, you know, you're talking about actually not being able to leave your homes. No. And I guess my question for you is, why is it happening now that the the attitudes are different? Is it just fatigue over these restrictions or is there something else in play is the government not able to you know make these uh rules and keep them the way they were a year ago or what what's happening that's different now or is the delta variant situation just just a virus is it just an x factor that's not uh, containable at this point you, you know uh J jared the, the the main struggles that people are having now even with this lockdown you know we've just had a, a, a you know, a, a, a relief of laughter. Um, early this week, uh, I, I cried when I heard of some households and families that are really struggling. And indeed, we are struggling. Um, there was a man who decided he's just going to go out of his home and go to the streets and try and sell something. And uh, downtown Kampala. And the police, you know, are going around trying to beat people out of the streets, and they found this man. He's he's not uh, he's handicapped, and um, so the, the police wanted to beat him up, but they looked at him and they saw his condition, and so they didn't beat him up. But they asked him, "Why are you out here?" He said, "Look, I'm out here because I can't stay at home. How am I going to feed my wife who has just newly given birth? I have a baby." who is just, you know, days old, and I have another one, and I need to feed them. If I can't get out, if I can't try and sell something and go back home, what am I going to tell my family? We cannot all sit there and die. At least let me come out here. That's why I came out here. And they told him, but what are you going to be, who are you going to be selling it? Because I was just thinking about home. this. This is a terrible business yeah. model. Exactly. And he said, look, at least my family knows that I'm out here trying to do something. I mean, it's not so much yeah. of how, if I sit home, it's like I'm doing nothing. I need to do something. I don't know what it is, but for me, this is what I had to do. I had to come out with these wares of mine and try and sell and see if I can go home with something. And they told him, no, you have to go home. He said, no, 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 no. You'd rather kill me here. Even if you want to beat me, beat me and kill me. Let my family know that I, I died trying, as opposed to going home and they, they see, they, you know, they feel like I, I, I haven't done anything. So this is what these lockdowns are pushing people to. People are yeah. struggling. I have had, um, uh, we, we work with a community of refugees here in Uganda that we support in the urban areas, as well as in the, in the refugee camps of, in West Nile. And uh, the other day, yesterday, I received an email from them telling us, please, can you support us to get um, masks, to get gloves? Because right now, 
um, it, it's actually an association of uh, refugee drivers. So they said, you know, uh, we are now having to step in and uh, attend to our refugees who are ill, and we have to take them to hospitals using the vehicles that we have, but we don't even have the money to fuel the vehicles. We don't even have money to buy gloves, to buy, you know, masks. Uh, and some of them, when we take them to hospital, they even die on the way. And now we have to take responsibility to bury them. We don't have any resources at our disposal. Could you please help us? And look, I have no money uh, within our programming that we have designated for such needs. So I look at that and I'm, I'm, I'm almost tearing myself out. I'm like, how do I help with such needs? Great, great needs that none of us would have imagined have come out that we can't ignore. We can't let people struggle while we are able to, you know, to intervene. So these are some of the challenges, the realities that, that, are, that are facing so many families. There are those that are going without food. There are those that um, are literally, you know, they are like, maybe I should just go out there. If I die, let me die. Uh, these are the perceptions that, that they are, rather than stay in the house and die anyway. So this is what we are facing as we speak, and, and this is what the lockdowns are pushing people to. Yeah. There is a universal agony that we are facing, and, and whether, you know, whether you're in Kansas or mm. Washington, D.C., or Kampala, where, wherever we are, we, humans are not meant to live in this way where we are isolated, whether it's whether it's the real isolation of actually no. being, you know, rounded up by police if you leave your home or the kind of, you know, white glove <laughs> yeah, lockdown that the United States has experienced. But I think all of us have had that taken away from us where we've we know that feeling of this isn't this isn't how human beings are meant to live. Exactly. Yeah. But there's another factor here, and this is something that, again, I was I was brought to my attention by the the work that Mercy Corps is doing, and we're talking about very different vaccine vaccine penetration numbers here. You know, here in the United States, we're we're just about to hit the the July Fourth Independence Day holiday. The Biden administration has set this ambitious goal, which looks like we'll, we'll almost hit it of seventy percent penetration. Of, of people who are vaccinated. But yes. Uganda's talking about a much lower number. I think 2% is what I saw. And and that's a different uh, universe of, of responsibilities, uh, possibilities, life living. And, and this is dangerous in two ways that I can see. One, obviously, for the people who are experiencing it and not vaccinated and not being able to feel this enormous relief that I've felt, I mean, I was able to get the vaccine a few months ago and I felt, I, I, I cried in the room when I got it. And I cannot imagine people waiting longer. I, I wanted to give mm -hmm. it to everyone I could because I wanted everyone to feel that relief. But there's also the other side of this, which is that when mm -hmm. the vaccine is left unchecked in any population, we have the potential for the mutations, and that, of course, leads to the Delta variant that we've seen uh, affecting a lot of places, including in the United States, mm. but, of course, mm. also where you are. And and from the either compassionate or utilitarian argument, mm. there's a real need to fix this problem. Can you talk about 
the difference between 2% and 70% and what you're experiencing and what that what that's done because I cannot even imagine I can't feel that but I want you to yeah. to try to understand help me understand Jason that's very very concerning um Uganda received 960 um vaccines early in the year that was i think in april less less than 1 million in a pop, a country that has a population of 48 million people we had less than a million vaccines these vaccines ran out and uh, they ran out at a time when this uh, second wave was beginning so right now as we speak the only batch of vaccine that came in was last weekend, and that was 176,000 vaccines. So, so you are looking at um, even the people who had the first round of 960, you know, the ones that have come in cannot even cover that population. They cannot even get the second round job and cover, you know, uh, all the ones who are vaccinated in the first round. That's yeah. how serious it is. And, but from um, even a more concerning perspective is that, you see, the reason why the United States is aiming at having uh, 75% of the population uh, vaccinated is that, uh, you know, to be able to control and contain these and reduce the spread, you need to have a larger part of the population, you know, immunized so that they are resistant to the, to the variants and to the virus from spreading. That way, you protect the smaller population of people who are not vaccinated uh, because there will not be, you know, there won't be as many people uh, who, who have it around them. Now, in Uganda, what is even worrying now is that we are seeing infections, you know, catching up with people who have been vaccinated, including people who have even had their second round of vaccination. And we have had some of them die. Why? Because if you're just going to vaccinate a million people out of 48 million people, eventually you have so many people infected around them that whatever vaccination they have doesn't even have an effect. And that's very, very concerning. Two of our country directors who passed away, one of them was fully vaccinated. So that's worrying now. And, and you know, what is even more concerning now is that uh, we all know that the, 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 the thing that can get us out of this is a vaccine. But when we go out there, there are no vaccines. Right now, people yeah. are queuing. And, you know, when they hear that this 176 vaccine came around, you'll find the, the, the lines, you know, are full of people who are going for the second round or for the first round. Yet the government made it very clear that the vaccines available are for this, the people who are going in for the second shot. People are desperate, but there is no help for those who need it. So that's what is worrying. That's very, what is frustrating. And, and we hope that, um, you know, that this can be addressed very soon. Vaccine equity is, is a critical need. And look, what options do people have? You know, a lot of people don't have medical covers here, no insurance covers. So when you fall sick right now, you're going to be shipped into a hospital the bill is going to be over $1,000. This is way beyond what many households can afford. Hospitals are demanding a down payment of not less than $1,000. Very few people can afford this. So what we are having is a situation where people are actually 
dying when we could have saved lives. So it's an extreme situation. It's an apocalypse that we are facing. So we, we just need to make sure that people get vaccinated as much as we can so that we can have you know, the virus contained and controlled. Otherwise, locking down people is not sustainable. It's not going to no. be sustainable at all. Yeah, we need the vaccine. We need it out. We need it now. Again, I'm thinking about the contrast. You know, I have um, a family member who said to me that the reason they're not getting the shot is it's not that bad here. I remember those words, and I can I can still hear them in my ear, and think, this is so foolish and so privileged to say well in my little corner of the universe it's fine and i'm not going to pay attention mm. what's laid bare in the experience that you're describing is that nobody can say that because it's everywhere and there's no one who can say that they're not touched by this and i and i hate to to look upon this misery and say you know for the folks who are even just concerned about a u.s audience like this is this is a caution to be seen as if we are cavalier about the spread, even with these new variants for, for places, you know, because, again, people who are listening, if you're in an area of the country where the vaccine, the vaccine population is lower, you know, 20 percent to 30 percent, that some of these places are, are like that. Uh, you're you're running the risk of exactly what you're describing, Edward. And that 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 to me is. But then, of course, there's the larger problem of you're not just describing a cautionary tale for our experience. You're describing human misery on a scale that I cannot even comprehend. And I, I want people to know that the work that you're doing at Mercy Corps uh, is something that they can support. And can you explain a little bit about what the mission is right now? Because obviously, you know, as a country director, you deal with any number of issues. You talk about food insecurity. You're talking about, you know, violence insecurity. You're talking about medical insecurity. I'm guessing this has been the main thing on your plate for some time. Uh, how can people support the mission and what is the mission right now from, from your perspective? So right now, uh, Jared, we have interventions across the country. We have nine field offices in Uganda. And we serve some of the most underprivileged populations in this country. Uh, we have five, six field offices in a region called Karamoja. Karamoja receives very little rainfall. So uh, most of the year they suffer from drought and um, the population is largely a pastoralist community who move from place to place. And uh, partly they have to do that because they have to look for grazing when the, uh, the drought strikes and also water. Water is very scarce. Uh, these are the people we reach out to. And because they are moving from place to place, um, our interventions are to help them settle and try to cope with the climate change, the, the challenges of climate change, but also build resilience in terms of their food security and, and be able to cope uh, with, with the challenges that are created by those uh, uh, demands around them. So uh, as you probably know, you know, this pressure also creates uh, conflict uh, because when they move um, around grazing, they are definitely trespassing on other people's land. 
And sometimes they even cross territories. That whole region is a belt that goes all the way to uh, Kenya and South Sudan. It's a whole dry region uh, that is also a hotbed of conflict and cattle rusting. So you have a lot of uh, small arms in that area. And on the side of Uganda, even when the government forces go in there to try and contain the situation, sometimes it gets very violent. So again, we have to uh, work on um, you know, peace mediation, uh, try to pacify communities to be able to coexist with each other and share the limited and few resources that are around in terms of natural resources, such as grazing and pasture. But then we also try to make interventions in helping them to grow crops so that they are not only dependent on livestock, but they can also grow crops where it's possible uh, and where water resources are available to do some small irrigation projects. Um, so we are working with young people in those areas as well to be able to build their skills so that they can also be able to acquire some assets. This community believes that um, their wealth is in livestock. So owning a cow is a very privileged um, status. So the more cows you have, the more wealthier you are. So assets are valued in terms of cows. And so we have a lot of veterinary activities going on, livestock uh, improvement programs, just to make sure that we are addressing the needs um, where they are. Uh, we also do a lot of work on the western side of Uganda. This is West Nile. Uh, you may know that Uganda presently is hosting a population of 1.4 million refugees. Um, these are people who are displaced from uh, South Sudan mainly, but we also do have refugees from Congo and uh, others from Burundi, Rwanda, and, and other countries around. The refugee populations are such, um, you know, very, very uh, needy population. They came in empty-handed. And so, you know, we make interventions of helping them to get shelter, the very basics of water, sanitation. And uh, in our case, we are working hard now on um, equipping them with skills, giving them seeds so they can grow and harvest a crop that they can, you know, support themselves. So small subsistence uh, farming, uh, mainly to provide for their household food. And um, in some cases, we are actually also helping them graduate to be able to produce for the market. So we have various interventions that are targeting towards that. Um, you may, for those who go to our website, you learn that Massicops does a lot of market systems approach where we empower community with tools and skills that can actually help them uh, you know, play a role in the market. And we strongly believe that if we can bring the poor, if we can bring the marginalized to participate in the market, uh, you know, to be able to uh, create something, produce something and be able to sell in the market, that can eventually sustainably get them out of poverty. So we believe in empowering the communities as opposed to giving them food, we give them the seeds and the resources that they will need so that they can actually generate, produce the food, sell, uh, feed and, and be able to acquire some resources out of that. So these are some of the interventions that we have. Within Kampala, we also support refugees in the urban context. 
we have set up various platforms. There is a website that we created recently where refugees can actually get on board and offer their skills or some of their wares that they would want to sell and be able to earn an income um, and, and support their livelihoods. We also give micro grants to those refugees who have businesses in Kampala uh, to be able to uh, you know, restock. Uh, right now, the challenge is actually uh, stocks, you know, because many of them, uh, as a result of COVID, you know, and businesses not operating or rather people not being able to buy, uh, a lot of them are not able to sell much. So they need some bit of capital. They need, they need some bit of uh, relief uh, support to keep them going for, uh, for, the, for the lockdown period, which was indicated as 42 days. Uh, we, you can imagine, uh, uh, I was so pleased uh, yesterday, but one, I received some news uh, of one of our, from one of our colleagues in, in, in Portland who told me that uh, we have some $45,000 that we can uh, do uh, you know, cash transfers to some household. So we will be distributing about $140 to each household. And we believe that um, uh, with this household that have about five people, that this money, as little as it is in other quarters, it will be able to take them through the 45 days of lockdown. So these are some of the needs that um, you know we are trying to to deal with and cope with. Uh, but as you know, the resources are short, and yeah. we we would do with a lot more um, and be able to support more households. And all I can think of when you're describing you know refugee communities or internally displaced communities, you know these are places that are usually pretty tight quartered. These these problems are compounding each other, and and again. That level of support uh, is 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 low, but I, I know that, that some of the folks who, uh, who who are able to listen here would be able to, to help. So I, I would encourage them to do so, and I'll make sure to include some links in the description of this episode because, uh, again, people who are interested in this work. Uh, again, I, I, I think about my wife used to work uh, for uh, Grameen Foundation, which does exactly some of the work that you're describing. Uh, with microloans and a few other things, and I and I know that work, and obviously Mercy Corps doing a lot of work. My wife had the benefit of going to Uganda, and mm -hmm. I am just so sad that I was not able to get there before all yeah. of this. Uh, and and I'm very hopeful that uh, we will be able to make that trip uh, in in the, when all of this is over. A phrase that uh, <laughs> carries a lot of weight for all of us at this point. You know, in in a world where Edward, we've we've had so much taken from us in the last yeah. year and a half. I am, I'm very grateful that you are continuing the fight to uh, to make sure that we have a few things that uh, come out of this. And uh, I'm I'm very grateful for your time today. Thank you, Jared. We'll be happy to host you. We'll be happy to have ah. you visit the field and meet the communities that we work with. It will be a great pleasure to have you. And it's been a joy to be with you on this uh, uh, roundtable. My, my the pleasure is really all mine, and I really hope that you continue to be as as healthy as possible. I know the uh, when when the virus affects people that are close to you, it, it it cannot you cannot help but have that flash moment of 
this could also happen to me. And I exactly. think that everyone listening to this conversation knows exactly that feeling, yep. maybe not as intimately as you do. But uh, again, uh, appreciate the both the expertise and the intimacy that you've offered today. This is uh, Mercy Corps director for Uganda, country director for Uganda, Edward Simiu. Uh, Edward, again, thank you for joining me at the table, and I will make sure to include some uh, descriptions that will help people direct to the to the mission that you are that you are doing there. Thanks again, and uh, good luck. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Jared.